Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. Today's a bit of a family episode as I'm joined by my brother Tim Kane. Tim is the co-founder and CEO of MyHSA, which is a software company that facilitates insurance brokers offering health spending accounts to their clients and employers to their employees. Tim's evolution from a brick-and-mortar business owner to a digital entrepreneur is an interesting one, and his journey has been filled with hard lessons about building a software business as a non-technical founder. His passion and determination and strong focus on customer service have served him well. As a result, Tim and his co-founder Steve have a growing business that has moved from two people in a database to eight plus staff and a fast growing client base. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Also, be sure to check out the webpage evolvedmgmt.com slash podcast for show notes, links to my guests, and to check out previous episodes. Now let's get started. Joining me today is Tim Kane, CEO and co-founder of MyHSA. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate you having me on the show. And full disclosure, Tim uh, does share a last name with me and is my my brother, but uh, has a very interesting story on his evolution from uh, sole proprietor, uh, business owner, and uh, moving towards a a digital business and a working on a software company. I figured it was a, an interesting topic. I've heard you interviewed in another spot and was really fascinated by the depth of the story and, and your experience in, in how your uh, your business and your role in your business has changed uh, transitioning to uh, your starting a software company. So I really wanted to uh, dig in and explore some of the lessons learned as a, a non-technical person who has founded a software company. Um, I think it's kind of interesting I see this as a, a more of a trend. I don't know if you've seen this in some of your other peer groups and, and business owners that you know, but I, I definitely see a lot of people that are coming from the traditional business world and moving into something that is a bit more digital, whether it be software or starting something online. Is that uh, something similar that you've seen as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I, I don't think anybody and knowing what I know now would actually choose to go into the software industry. But the software industry, when you're starting a software or tech idea, you start to literally fall into the tech world. You know, I'm actually from an insurance background and I fell into insurance, uh, but my family was in insurance. It was a logical place for me to, to be in. How I transitioned into the software was, I think, like a lot of other people, is they had a great idea and learned that there's so much with respect to technical knowledge and, and software and innovation out there that can make great ideas even better. So I don't think there's a lot of people that are actually trying and venturing into the software. I just think there's a lot of people with good ideas and innovation and technology gives them the, the, the know-how to be able to exploit and build those ideas. So you mentioned that you, you kind of fell into this as well. So this is not something that you necessarily envisioned in starting, but it was more based in the idea of what it could be, and it happened to be digital. Is that a more accurate way to describe it? Todd, you know me. I wasn't a technical person growing up. I like technology, but I have also have a little bit of ADD, and it would fall off quite quite quickly. I wasn't heavily involved with technology. And how I got into the technology business was absolutely by mistake. I'll tell you a little of the story. I, again, I, I tell the story a lot. I'm going to tell it one more time. Uh, I owned a property and casualty insurance brokerage in Calgary called BKI Risk Management. And BKI was 
it was actually my father's business that had a spin on it when I took it over. I, he, he had sold it and I took it over and we decided that we wanted to do, do things differently. So we migrated from a personal commercial insurance brokerage to strictly commercial. And then one day through uh, a run-in with my benefits broker, I decided that with my property and casualty insurance that I was selling, it would be logical for me to go out and buy benefits. I thought benefits would be quite easy to sell for our company and, and we just had to be in that space. So we went out and looked for a benefits company that was for sale. And if you know anything about benefits, usually there's not a lot of client contact. The clients aren't going to move. There's not a lot of transition within it. So it's quite easy to keep. And in that, it's actually quite hard to find a brokerage that's for sale because the person can literally run it out of their basement until they're 80 and make more reoccurring revenue than, than to be able to sell it and make whatever the multiples of, of EBITDA or revenue that are out there. So fortunately or unfortunately for us, for myself, I was a bit of a go-getter. I wanted a benefits brokerage and I was going to get one regardless of what the cost. So we ended up buying a brokerage. It was about $140,000 of revenue. The, the interesting part of this benefits brokerage is that there's an absolute reason why it was for sale. The person had built this health spending account. And for those who don't know what a health spending account is, I'll I'll give you a little background in it. It's a CRA approved method in which an employer can fund, fund their employees benefits tax free. And so rather than buying insurance, you can give an employer, employee a money to go, go out and spend on health benefits. It's tax free to the employer and tax free to the employee. It's actually been quite separated from the employee benefit space. But in this particular instance, the company that I bought, the broker had the innovation to say this should be included within the employee benefits model that he built. So he actually built a Microsoft Access database for facilitating these paper transactions, these health spending accounts. And so in looking at this model, we saw where it made sense. When we had purchased the brokerage, we saw where it made sense. It was incredibly easy to go out and sell benefits and also sell these health spending accounts. Uh, my partner, Steve, who's my partner in my HSA, used to sell benefits for us. And when he was going out with the property and casualty insurance brokers, he had one mandate, sell one of these health spending accounts because they were quite easy. They were good for a startup and great for a door opener. But in buying that and recognizing that this is a necessary part of our business, we also realized that this was an absolute nightmare to administer. It was Microsoft Access, and true story, we actually had an ad on Kijiji at one point in time when the old business owner laughed, saying that we need somebody to help our Microsoft Access database. We put an ad on Kijiji and said, we need a developer. Somebody replied and said, yep, for $500 an hour, I'll administer your Microsoft Access database. 500 so that, an hour? 500 an hour. Wow. That's how specialty it was out there, and it was the only response we got on it. So looking at that, we said, we got, there's got to be a better way. Let's get rid of it. But we didn't really want to get rid of it. We had clients that were attached to it. So we ended up looking for some alternative solutions out there. And there's some providers out there would provide these health spending accounts as a, as a side business. It wasn't really part of their peer technology, but it was definitely part of it. And so we tried to get rid of it by looking at these other ulterior platforms out there and providers 
and eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, this Microsoft Access database, regardless how shitty it was, was state-of-the-art. It was awesome. It worked quite well. So rather than going in our reluctancy and keeping this Microsoft Access database, we said, you know what, why don't we build another platform? And that venture and that, that got myself into the software business. Now, build another platform to me was how do we build another platform? From my standpoint is go out, find a developer and get them to build it. So we actually built uh, the MyHSA platform, took a million dollars of business that we ran under a Microsoft Access database, built a software within 30 days, and this will show how much I don't know about software, and rolled the entire book over to the new platform that we had built in, in 30 days. Needless to say, that was an absolute nightmare. The, how we transitioned from one to the other is that Steve said no. Steve was was actually, Steve McEwen's my partner in my HSA, and he was actually working on the benefits. He said, no, we have to transition this slowly. I don't transition anything slowly. I turn one on, often the other one on, without Steve knowing what happened. So essentially, we turned into a software company literally overnight and understood what it was like to be a software company, which was painful. <laughs> At best, it was, if you can imagine bugs, multiply them by a million. That's where we're living on a day-to-day basis. So that, that must have been uh, a pretty eye-opening experience when you realized the, the complexity of the software. You, you're right. Like, I can't imagine, I'm sure the hair on people's neck stood up when they said you, uh, you built a platform in 30 days and went production with it. Uh, was it, was it uh, risky for the business? Like, did it cause a lot of, a lot of issues or was it more internal stuff wasn't working? Like what was the visibility to, to the external client base? Uh, it was a nightmare all around. It was a nightmare all around. It was, if anything that could go wrong, we had it. There was clients that were upset. We hadn't couldn't track. And remember I'm from a big and brick and mortar business. And so when somebody says to me, I'm going to build you a product within 30 days, I'm expecting that hey, it's that product's going to work. And the naivety, but also the great part of what we built is that we didn't know that, that what that naivety was. We didn't understand that software doesn't work that way. So turning it on was actually crazy. I mean, it was nightmare. There was everything that could possibly go wrong happened. But in that chaotic gong show that we we had within that 30 days we were able to quickly build what we needed and the only reason the best way to build something is when somebody's yelling at you all day if you want to make the developers work if you want to make the thing the the models start to work very well you have to be yelled at unfortunately especially in the software industry you need that those users to start telling you what you need and be able to adapt and build it so this is and, fairly, this is fairly similar to what a lot of other people say is you know most uh, especially digital entrepreneurship is you you jump off the cliff and start building the plane as you're going and even though you had a functioning business you still followed the same model by throwing yourself off a cliff and building the software on your way down right the only reason the only thing that's different between myself and others that people actually know the tech industry is I came running and I didn't know there was a cliff right that's the the fundamental difference between it you know, it's a funny story. There's a company actually out of Edmonton. It's a tech company. They've been in beta for 15 years. And they we told them how long we'd been in beta, and they couldn't believe it. And I actually responded to them and said, what is, what's beta? 
we didn't even know what beta was until a couple of years ago when a tech company told us we should have done that before we went live, which in that it's kind of cool because you can either sit there and stick in beta and hope to heck you get out of beta one day, or you can choose the my HSA route, not definitely not saying this is the route that everybody needs to go or should go, but it definitely works because there's no such thing as beta when people real life clients are affecting your brick and mortar business by having this piece of technology that's a very small percentage of it. So obviously um, the the experience didn't didn't uh, cause um, material risk to the business. I mean, it did in the time, but it, it didn't sink you guys. So uh, what were the lessons learned and what do you think was, was the sort of the, the key factor to that not crippling the business as you guys made this, this pretty uh, monumental shift? But I think because users, and I, I use the term users now, I'll say real life people are, they love change. They love watching it evolve. And they, they wanted to see what happens next within the MyHSA platform because we're actually building something that people wanted. It was definitely need and, and people wanted to see how it went. And you believe it or not, when you're building something, you think it's really chaotic and it is, but users are, are, are more, they're, they're more inclined to help you try to build what they want rather than cripple it. And so while it's affecting our business, the people that loved it really loved it. And, uh, you know, I think I've, I'm sure I've shared this with you, Todd, before, is we actually had chat or we used chat in the MyHSA platform. And chat was when we built that thing within 30 days, we talked to the developer and the developer said, you have to have chat. You're a technology. Technologies cannot have fun phone numbers. And so we launched chat. And I totally wholeheartedly disagreed with everything that they were saying, but we launched chat. What we actually started to use chat as is the building tool. And if you have chat and somebody's pissed off at you, they come into chat, they're going to tell you why they're upset. But usually there's probably 60% of the people that are going to try and use it are going to tell you how it could be better. So we started using chat rather than a tool to tell us how bad we were to actually tell us how good we were and what we could do to make things better, if that makes sense. So we actually reverse flipped it rather than taking being a query and being a help desk. We used it as a building tool for our business. So we still, to this day, operate chat. And uh, and we know the best, we always say when I'm in the MyHSA office, the best chat the best chat day is, is when nobody chats. That means we're doing something right. So our tools and our resources are put towards to make sure that we don't have any chats. Yeah, it's a it's a, a, an interesting model. Like a lot of other software companies will do feature requests and then they kind of scan through those feature requests and eventually pick a few that are seem to be popular and, and, and kind of work on those. But you, as you said, you were using the live chat as, as a more interactive way to build that feature set. Like what were the things that people struggled with? What are things that d- people didn't understand? You use that as, as direct feedback to, to uh, improve the system based on live interactions with the users. I think it's it, that dedication and I, uh, uh, to the user base, I think, um, probably rewards their loyalty even further, especially if the requests that they're made, they're, they're, they're making are so tangible within a short period, they see them show up and they're like, wow, they're actually really listening to me. Totally. Totally. In fact, they'll tell you a story about that. When we first started up, there was a company out of Kelowna that had an advisor that absolutely hated me. Uh, he, uh, he called when I was trying to launch the MyHSA platform and the scariest part of the MyHSA platform is when I sold my business 
my insurance business, my brick and mortar, went into the software business, they built it. And then everybody was looking at me going, now you have to sell it. And I'm going, oh my God, now I have to sell it. I don't know anything about a health spending account. Definitely don't know anything about technology. And now I have to go sell. So logical part of trying to sell was going on LinkedIn and spamming everybody I knew and everybody I didn't know. And there ran into the guy, a guy, his name was Lyle. I won't mention his last name in case he listens to this podcast. But he, he, I added him on LinkedIn, sent him an email, asked him if I could show the system. And Lyle had it in him. He found my phone number. He called me up and he ripped on me for about 45 minutes about adding him on LinkedIn and spamming him. And he, then we got into the model after he got his outburst out and told me, and he told me it's never going to work. And I said, why is it never going to work? And he said, because it doesn't matter what happens within the system or what you guys are trying to innovate, the HSA models out there, the spending account models from an advisor standpoint is trading nickels, meaning that it would cost him too much effort and too much time to be able to facilitate a program of spending accounts, whether that's wellness or HSA, and to make any money on it. So we actually built a a feature in the system that is called the Lyle factor. And what the Lyle factor does is shows at a broker how much time they're spending on the system compared to how much money they're making. And every time that a broker, we look at those in our analytics and we try to build it to make it shorter. So the Lyle factor does not exist. And it's always been a strong terminology of mine is trading nickels. Very cool. That's a, another interesting point of taking people's direct feedback and weaving it into the system. I love it. Uh, it, you mentioned something that I, I, I did want to explore a little further is uh, the sales and marketing angle of moving from a brick and mortar to something that uh, is a bit more ethereal. Uh, how did that influence the, the way that you sold and, and marketed the, the organization uh, from the traditional going out meeting, talking about uh, insurance, which generally any business owner has a, a pretty good comprehension of, to now moving towards you know uh, uh, this this brokerage piece and uh, the uh, the digital contracts and HSA, which people may or may not be familiar with. What was your experience in switching from something that was a bit more of a tangible uh, or understood product to something that was that was a bit more digital? Well, I think. Digital, digital is easy. I always said that we actually built, and we're not proud of this now. I'll tell you that right now. But we have never spent one dollar marketing my HSA to anyone. We've actually built the entire platform, and every broker that we've had on there, every advisor, MGA, TPA that are on the system, are there because of either referral, which we get a lot of referrals now. But when it originally started happening, it was a tool. It was LinkedIn. LinkedIn was my tool to build my HSA. And the rationale behind it was, is I was from the insurance industry, but I knew nothing about the benefits industry. And actually, if you look at insurance, benefits, life, financial products are very separated from the PNC. They just don't mesh together, especially in Canada. But what LinkedIn had was an absolute wealth of people that were in the benefits industry that I could get in touch with. I always said to people that if I had the tools like I had when I was building my HSA platform, I never would have sold my insurance brokerage because I would have been the most wealthy insurance broker in the world. And there's so many contacts that you can get just by a digital touch, joining conversations, spamming. Uh, true story, and this is this is one of the funny things when we were building it, I was actually banned from LinkedIn for a point in time for spamming people. They actually shut down my account and said, 
we are on trial, had too many complaints about you. But after that opened up, I just kept on going. And it was one by one by one by one. And that's actually how we built it. Now, how a company started out of Calgary that started in first in the boardroom of an insurance brokerage. And then we started in Wade's Coffee Shop, which is down on 17th Avenue. Now we actually have a physical premise in there to build a company with two guys that sat there, knew nothing about computers, knew nothing about software, and kept on pushing the envelope and to be able to build this company that's now across Canada. We're definitely going to move into the U.S. uh, in 2018. By sitting here and not really knowing much about the business, it proves how cool having digital tools are because it opens doors that you didn't think the doors could ever be open. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's kind of this expansive world that really changes once once you start to become familiar with it. Um, you, you mentioned not like the, the it not being a physical product yet. <clears throat> you have a physical office. Uh, is it something I find curious uh, from early on when it was just you and Steve? You guys had an office, and I was always mystified by this. I figured if it's a digital product, you know, to minimize your costs and startup, like well, uh, you, a lot of people just work out of their basement, and you guys chose to to have a physical space to work from. Was that just a hangover from having a, a, a brick and mortar business and traditionally feeling like you had to go to the office, or was there some other uh, some other thought process in maintaining a physical space? It still is. When I sold uh, my company, which was BKI, and just a little background on that, I never meant to sell BKI. I was approached one day while I was falling into the software industry by one party, and we ended up negotiating and and uh, taking my experience of, do I really want to do this, and do I want to be a software company, or do I want to st- st- stick with my bricks-and-mortar company, and went through that process and eventually ended up selling it. Now, the worst thing for me was that, you know, you got a, you got some money in the bank, you got all the freedom in the world, you can do whatever you want, but you don't have to go to work anymore. And walking in and seeing filing cabinets and people and all the things that were necessary made me feel about good about going good or bad about going to work. They were all there. When my HSA was started, it was Steve and I, and it's actually funny if anybody ever comes by our office, if you know what the Marta Loop District is in Calgary, it's this little house. It's a commercially zoned house and very expensive taxes. And at that point in time, when we were building my HSA, Steve and I used to sit. It's about 1,100 square feet for this building. It's not a big building, but it looks big when two guys have two desks that are pushed right up together and sitting there on the computer. That's all we had in the entire office. But it gave me the serenity to say, I got enough to go to work. I got enough to start building this company. It was enough brick and mortar. Because when I got rid of all the filing cabinets, all the people, and all I had was my laptop, that's a very, very scary transition for somebody that knows nothing about that. My whole world was on Dropbox. So I guess it was a bit of a psychological attachment of, I'm, I'm still in business, I have a business because I have this physical structure that surrounds me then, right? Still is. Yeah. Interesting. Still is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not a big virtual guy. I'm not a big work from home guy. I just couldn't do that. And I know some people can do that, but it's a mental thing for me. You need a purpose. Yeah. 
No, I, th- I think it's important to, to separate you know, even your physical space. If you do work from home, you, you need that, that separate physical space that just puts you into the work mentality. So I, I, I can respect having a, a place to go to work because then you're there, you're getting to work, right? I think maybe the only part you missed in that, that whole strategy is you probably should have just set up in the garage since you were starting, <laughs> starting a tech company, right? Yeah, tech companies, well, you know, they all have big budgets. We have small budget. We have a big budget for what we have in the office. So, yeah. so we got to blow it somewhere. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I guess this is kind of a broad question that, that I, I think there's a, a ton of answers here, but uh, maybe just think of it uh, in, the, in the context of someone who is not necessarily a technical person, similar to your position, but has a great idea for a business that, that uh, potentially is a digital product or something that starts online. Uh, what were some of the important lessons or things that you would have done differently as a non-technical person starting a software company? We we're a bootstrap company. We have zero external funding, but every VC that we've talked to every people that have come to talk to us for any other reason, the, the fundamental core values of what they look for is they look for the, the sales guy, the operations guy and the technical piece. And my HSA until actually, I guess it would have been December of 2016, we actually had entirely an outsourced tech uh, uh, team. And at, in December, we made the point in time, and I think it was after talking to these people, we said, geez, you know, we've got to check these boxes. And literally, I think we just did it to check the boxes because the business was operating the way that it was operating and it was operating well. But bringing in tech in-house was life-altering. I mean, it's the coolest and the best information that we got from anybody is get it in-house. And we actually weren't really doing it because we thought we need it. We were doing it to appease somebody that was saying it had to be done. But in a technology company, you don't necessarily need somebody that knows the technology to found it. I don't believe that at all. But you definitely have to be have some sort of digital strategist to take the people that don't know anything about technology. They got to have some rationale and reason for it. I swear the reason that we've gotten so far is because when somebody comes to me with Internet Explorer version two, I'll be taking it to the tech guy saying it has to work on this. And the tech people are going, it can't. And I'm going, it has to. So we support every browser. And I think of it like a, like a, um, a real person that's really operating, looking at the system, they need it to work on everything. So you got to have that surrounding purpose. But if you take every suggestion from everyone and you don't have that digital strategist, the the advisor to say, this will work, but this is what's going to happen. It gets you in a lot of trouble. And we actually have a perfect example that we rebuilt the MyHSA, we call it 1.0. We rebuilt it with a digital 2.0 version. And that was, it was literally a half, actually launched at last April and it was almost a nightmare of, of, well, it was a nightmare, but it was almost of catastrophic proportions. You can't have that outsourced entirely team. You have to have somebody on the ground that knows about that technology or you're going to be behind and falling apart. And that's literally what happened to us with us. We got through it like we always do. But that was the biggest learning lesson for me is I would never do that with somebody that's contracted outsource that says, I'm going to help you because there's at a point in time, they're going to stop helping you and they're going to start helping themselves. And that's not a cut against anybody in the outsource 
world. I'm just saying that you do need to have those eyes on your team looking out for your best interests. And so, that part of it, we did. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So if you're starting as the CEO, uh, then the CTO is, is often a good offset, right? Because I think in a lot of uh, tech companies, it's usually the CTO that's starting and they're often, they're often a little too focused on the technology and either don't know the business side or the sales side of things. This is really just an inverse of that equation, right? So you're, you know, the, the, the CEO and the CTO and, and the COO are pretty primary positions. And maybe beyond that, you're maybe hiring some EA staff or some administrative staff. But before you really get too far, you probably want to cement those, those few positions at the executive level. Yeah, let me break it down for you. When we were, I was actually flying to Kelowna about a month ago. And there was a guy that I went to school with who had built a tech company. And he was the T- CTO. And they've still, to this, I think they were four years in operations, haven't had a sale. So they're actually trying to get some money to have a sale. And where I'm going, geez, we have all these sales. We're trying to scale. We're trying to get into the U.S. We're growing like crazy. They haven't even got off the ground. So the three roles within a tech company is definitely the CTO. They're the digital strategist. And I'm not talking a manager. I'm talking somebody that can see the vision, can see between what the CEO is saying, the COO is saying and be able to to break that down a little bit from a technical level, you have the COO that says, whoa, we got to wait on this. We can't launch it. It's got to be that a little bit of perfection to make sure that you're not going out and looking stupid. And then you have to have the CEO, and you don't have to call them that, but the guy that says, let's just launch it and figure it out later. I think those are the three roles within an organization that make a tech company work like a brick and mortar presence, but they have to be there. In other companies in brick and mortar, you can survive with just a president, but in a, in a tech company, unfortunately, I don't think you can wear all those hats. Yeah. I think it's important to, to have those different uh, areas of expertise and those the uh, everyone plays a different role. And even to, to what you alluded to is the behavioral differences within the organization. You're very much uh, the action oriented and and we're moving forward today and and very uh, task focused and, and achievement focused and having someone that offsets that with a little more patience a little more uh, 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 wider view that that can uh, you know pull the reins on on someone pulling forward all the time every once in a while I think that's an important balance because you know if you're running at a hundred miles an hour all the time you can potentially get yourself in trouble but if you're too cautious to move forward and not execute on things then you may not get anywhere so that that balance is I think really critical for a growing organization. Do you think you would ever go back to a physical business or have you now sort of seen the light and converted to, to digital? Um, never say never, but I have a very strong love for technology. And what's cool about technology is you can take a business or an idea and you can blow it up in the fashion that I'm sure some people that can build a, a brick and mortar can build it up and blow it out the same way that I envision that I have or I can in a tech company, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, this may go back to my actual personal feelings regarding my, myself. I have to be there. I have to be front and center. And actually I was just telling a story the other day. The coolest part about a technology company from my perspective is that in my insurance brokerage, I was a lone soldier. I mean, I did everything. I could photocopy at 11 o'clock at night. I could, give you a pink card. I could go over there, sell you policies, interpret them. I could do absolutely everything. 
And I relied on the fact that if the world imploded and we had no more employees, we'd still be in business because I'd know how to do everything. In technology, I don't have, I don't actually know how to do everything. And I'm somewhat discomforted by that, but I'm also comforted by that, that I need to have other people. I need to have a team to be able to build on it. And so in a technology company, I'm not able to blow myself up. And that's speaking personally that I can't do everything. I can't be the, the Tim Kane insurance or Tim's my HSA. I rely on the other people in that. And to go back and build a brick and mortar company, I think from, from my standpoint, it just wouldn't work because I couldn't build it the way companies need to be built. And I think I'd end up burning myself out. Do you do you find that it, running a digital business has, has altered your life at all? Like they, I think a lot of people dream of having a more digital business so that they have a little more freedom, they can move around and not necessarily be attached to a physical office. Despite the fact that you guys choose to have a physical office, do you find that uh, it it creates any any more freedom or or changes your life at all having a digital business versus brick and mortar? Very, very much so. And and the cool part about my HSA is as I'm sitting here doing this bod- podcast with you, we're growing. Like our business is operating. We're actually growing. There's things going on that I have nothing to do with right now. Now, I, what I won't say is that business is still a business. You can't just build the digital product and decide to walk away and it's going to sell. It doesn't happen like that. I don't care what anybody says out there. Digital products don't sell. There's still people behind them that make the decisions and make them the companies that they are today. So your time is, yes, I have more time. Absolutely, I have more time. But your time can be used doing different things to be able to grow the business and and help the business than in a brick and mortar present. Does that make sense? Yeah, always about shifting priorities more than you you know, you're not the type of person that's looking to have time to kick back. You always want to have something have something to achieve and chew on anyway, right? Totally. And I always say to my actually I was talking to my wife who's been so super supportive of my my journey in the tech industry and I come home to her and I say, "I have nothing to do." And she says, "Well, isn't that a good thing?" For for once in your life, for the first time in your life, Tim, you have nothing to do. And I'm sure that I have something to do. But when the techs are building it, when we're putting apps out, when there's no people coming into chats, sometimes I have nothing to do. And it scares the living crap out of me because I lose that purpose. But then I can go sit in my house, you know, in my house and my HSA house and walk in and, and have a coffee. And I'm not that kind of guy and just try to. But the more time you be able to spend on the business, makes the business better for everybody and for first time in my life especially after december when we hired our our ceo i'm able to strategize and look for new things to do in the business rather than constantly working on the business or in the business yep so the the field as a whole you know you're you're kind of split this line between uh healthcare and software and insurance uh, either that field as a whole or picking one individual, how would you feel that the, the field is evolving? What do, you th- what do you see as kind of the three to five year shift in, in how things are moving? Um, my sense of this, uh, uh, to maybe give you a lead, is, is uh, a lot of this is becoming digital. And now we have you know, potentially smart contracts on the internet. Do you see some of that influencing? What's, what's your view on, on what's, what's going to be changing in your field over the next few years? 
when we first built the MyHSA platform up until, and I can tell you the exact date, everybody looked at it and said, this is kind of cool, but what do you do in building a business for this thing for? There's spending accounts are, are not really focused right now and people have them, but there's other, other people that do it. And then in April of 2016, there's this $33 million raise by Canadian insurers to build this digital platform for insurance to change insurance and to change health. And all of a sudden, it made sense. And it was really cool for us because people would say, well, what do you do? And we just mentioned these people and everybody know what we did. So their marketing of $33 million made our business make sense. Since that, there's been, I think, probably five or six entrances of these new digital health insurance platforms that are coming into the market. And this is just in Canada and the U.S. is blowing up as well saying, hey, this business, and I'm the first one to say it, this business is absolutely archaic, the insurance business. So to be able to take it online and not just focus on millennial business, which we clearly don't, we focus on advisors and, and building out that model, but the evolve, it's going to happen. You know, like people said, Uber wasn't going to happen or Airbnb or any kind of any kind of technology that's taking out the brick and mortar presence presence it's going to happen it's a matter of whether you want it to happen to you or whether you want to do something to be able to evolve the space but there's a ton of money going into the space space of insurance healthcare insure tech fintech they're growing all over the place so i think in the next 3 to 5 years we are perfectly positioned and we're going to grow very cool. Exciting times. So uh, any uh, parting words of wisdom or asks uh, you would have the audience before, before we uh, check out? You know, it's, the only thing I'll ask of the audience before we check out is if I, I like to talk on the phone. I mean, and if people want to talk and they want to hear the story of my HSA, that's our whole strategy right now is we want to get it out there. We want people to know who we were. When we were building it, we built it a lot like a brick and mortar presence and the fact that We'd only advertise when we advertise and we wouldn't really publicize that we're out there. And right now our main objective is trying to get us known and try and get us out of the, out in the industry. We are there. We are a force to be reckoned with and we are growing very well in our space. So anybody that wants to hear the story or reach out to me or just have any kind of, kind of uh, insight, that would be great. I also wanted to mention, this is my final thought, the coolest part of technology from what I have found is that any VC that we talk to or any founding member of the company, even our competitors in the brick and mortar space, when I was in the insurance business, you talk to people, how you doing? Great. Everything's busy. Yeah. It's a battle out there. And there was all this bullshit, small talk. What I've found in the technology business is that every single person I talk to, regardless of whether they're a technologist, whether they're a financial back, whatever, they always leave the conversation is with what can I do to help you? And they, they're dead serious. They mean that. And it's, it's a very cool industry. And the fact that they're just, everybody seems to be wanting to help others within the space, even though, even if they're competitive. So that's what I'll leave the conversation with is that I want to help others in this, in this space or in the technology. I want to be one of those people that say, what can I do to help you? 
Awesome. And if people are interested in having uh, services from MyHSA, is that something they can approach their broker with? And uh, maybe for also my knowledge, is there any is there some way that they can abdicate for whoever they're using for their broker to to get MyHSA as a part of their portfolio? What would that look like? Absolutely. So a lot of the advisors that we do get come from clients that want to use and try the MyHSA system. Uh, so if you're interested in it, we are not a direct market. We do not sell direct to consumer. We only sell to advisors, but we're not exclusive to advisors. We have a lot of advisors in the different jurisdictions. So if you want to get out, try the MyHSA platform, absolutely talk to myself or talk to the advisor. Okay. And if people would like to follow you and connect with you, uh, obviously, if you haven't reached out to them on LinkedIn already, they can probably find you there. <laughs> Anywhere else, the uh, contact info that you'd like to leave for people to reach out to you? They can get me uh, get me on LinkedIn. You can uh, Tim at myhsasecure.com is my email address. Uh, send me an email anytime. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Tim, and all the best uh, for the future growth of the company. Thank you, Dodd. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time.